Hello, and welcome to NICU Boot Camp. This is Dr. Kirsty Martin, second-year neonatology fellow at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester, Massachusetts. NICU Boot Camp is a high-yield curriculum for residents and medical students who will be rotating through the NICU at UMass. This series is meant to help you feel more comfortable and confident during your upcoming rotation. These podcasts have been adapted from the open access lectures published with the paper Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Boot Camp, a preparatory curriculum for residents by Dr. Jeffrey Surkoff and colleagues at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. The originally published curriculum can be found online at MedEd Portal, the Journal of Teaching and Learning Resources of the Association of American Medical Colleges. The learning objectives for our first NICU boot camp podcast are to interpret and manage basic vital signs for NICU patients, interpret and manage labs commonly encountered in the NICU, and to interpret and manage common x-ray findings encountered in the NICU. Example x-rays can be found in the supplementary material associated with this podcast. We will start by reviewing normal versus abnormal vital signs observed in the NICU. Infants have very different vital signs than older children and adults, so it is important to review the normal ranges of vital signs that we see in the NICU. First, let's talk about temperature. We routinely measure axillary temperatures in the NICU. The normal axillary temperature range is 36.5 to 37 degrees Celsius or 97.9 to 98.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Either hypo or hyperthermia can be caused by several things. Environmental factors are perhaps the most common cause. Issues with the temperature probe or isolate malfunction, as well as the infant being swaddled or layered too much or too little, can cause hypo or hyperthermia. Prematurity is also a factor. Infants may be unable to maintain body temperature due to decreased brown and white fat, immature hypothalamic function, and their large surface area to weight ratio. Sepsis can also be responsible for variations in temperature and should always be considered as a cause. Next, let's talk about heart rate. The normal range for neonatal heart rate is 80 to 160 beats per minute. The rate is lower during sleep and higher when crying or agitated. Gestational age can play a factor in heart rate as well. The older the infant, the lower the resting heart rate will be. Bradycardia is defined as a heart rate less than 80 beats per minute for term infants or less than 100 beats per minute for preterm infants. Bradycardia can be caused by vagal stimulation during stooling, vomiting, feedings or reflux, and or suctioning. Other causes include sepsis, hypothermia, acidosis, hypoxemia, airway obstruction, pneumothorax, or apnea. Tachycardia is defined as a heart rate over 180 beats per minute. There are several causes of tachycardia, including anemia, hypoxemia, sepsis, shock, hyperthermia, pain, agitation, medications including caffeine, or arrhythmia. Next, let's talk about respiratory rate. The normal range for neonatal respiratory rate is 30 to 60 breaths per minute. Apnea is defined as the absence of breathing for more than 20 seconds or a shorter pause associated with oxygen desaturation and or bradycardia. There are multiple causes, including central nervous system injury, sepsis, anemia, or metabolic abnormalities such as hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia, or hypermagnesemia. 
The diagnosis of apnea of prematurity can be made after other causes of apnea have been ruled out. Tachypnea is defined as a respiratory rate above 60 breaths per minute. Some common causes include pulmonary, cardiovascular, or metabolic disease. It is unsafe to orally feed an infant with an increased respiratory rate due to the risk of aspiration. Next, let's talk about blood pressure. Neonatal blood pressure is affected by gestational age, birth weight, and day of life. The general rule to determine hypotension is to compare the mean arterial pressure and the gestational or postconceptual age of the infant to determine the minimum mean arterial pressure to accept. Mean arterial pressure is frequently abbreviated MAP. However, do not confuse this MAP with the mean airway pressure MAP that exists in ventilator management. For example, if a newly delivered infant is 23 weeks, one would accept a MAP as low as 23. If an infant was born at 23 weeks but is now 4 weeks old, accept a MAP as low as 27. When you are assessing an infant for hypotension, it is also important to check for clinical signs of poor perfusion. Prolonged capillary refill and poor urine output less than 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour are indicative of hypotension. Hypertension is defined as a blood pressure consistently above the 95th percentile for age. In general, we start to look at hypertension when systolic blood pressures are reaching above 90 to 100 millimeters of mercury. It is important to confirm the elevated blood pressure by ensuring that the blood pressure is obtained with an appropriately sized cuff on the right upper extremity while the infant is quiet. The current Harriet Lane Handbook contains age-related normal values. Lastly, let's talk about oxygen saturation. Pulse oximetry measures the relative absorption of light by saturated and unsaturated hemoglobin, which absorbs light at different frequencies and gives a percentage of saturation. Oxygen saturation goals can be different for each patient, and it is important to know these goals. In general, for premature infants with lung disease, the acceptable range for oxygen saturation is about 88 to 93%. For full-term infants, acceptable oxygen saturations are above 90%. There are risks when saturations fall outside of the acceptable ranges. If the oxygen saturation is too low and the infant is hypoxic, end-organ damage may occur. If the oxygen saturation remains too high, oxygen toxicity may result in retinopathy of prematurity or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Infants with congenital heart disease may have different oxygen saturation goals depending on their specific cardiac lesion. 75 to 85% may be acceptable for these patients. Though we do not see many infants with significant cyanotic congenital heart disease in the UMass NICU, Occasionally, we will need to stabilize these infants before they are transferred elsewhere for further care. Next, we will discuss laboratory values that you will need to interpret while you are working in the NICU. First, we will talk about the complete blood count, or CBC. The CBC is made up of white blood cells, platelets, hemoglobin, and hematocrit. The normal range of white blood cell count in infants is 5,000 to 30,000. 
a white blood cell count lower or higher than this is concerning for infection. We also look at the differential when we are concerned for infection. An elevated immature to total neutrophil ratio or I to T ratio can be suggestive of infection. The I to T ratio can be calculated by dividing the total amount of immature cells, including bands, myelocytes, and metamyelocytes, by the sum of the immature cells and segmented cells or neutrophils. If an infant had a CBC with differential of 26 neutrophils and 17 bands, to calculate the I to T ratio, we would take 17 and divide it by 17 plus 26. The result is 0.4. A ratio greater than 0.2 is worrisome for infection. Remember to always order a differential with your CBC while you are working in the NICU. The next part of a CBC is the hematocrit. Acceptable values for hematocrit depend on the patient's clinical status. Any infant that requires oxygen may benefit from more blood volume. Remember that hemoglobin which carries oxygen is found in red blood cells. By increasing the infant's number of red blood cells, we can increase the baby's ability to carry oxygen to deprived tissues more easily. In the UMass NICU, we have a transfusion guideline that indicates transfusion thresholds based on the day of life, need for respiratory support, and reticulocyte count. Please see your NICU survival guide for the full guideline. Infants may be anemic at birth secondary to blood loss in the setting of placental abruption, uterine rupture, or cord prolapse. They may also have anemia from bone marrow suppression secondary to significant maternal preeclampsia. All infants become anemic at some point in their lives, which is called physiologic anemia. In utero, the fetus is in a relatively hypoxic environment. The highest partial pressure of oxygen found in blood in the umbilical vein providing oxygen from the placenta is about 28. Therefore, the fetus has a high hematocrit of about 50 to optimize oxygen carrying capacity. A typical hematocrit for a preterm infant is 45. A typical hematocrit for a term infant is 55. After delivery, as the infant breathes room air and the partial pressure of oxygen increases, red blood cell production decreases. Once the infant's hematocrit reaches a physiologic nadir, the infant produces erythropoietin, which stimulates the bone marrow to produce red blood cells. Premature infants may not respond appropriately, putting them at risk for symptomatic anemia. Iatrogenic blood losses also contribute to anemia of prematurity as well, which is why we try to limit the number of labs we obtain from premature infants. Transfusion may be necessary when anemia becomes symptomatic. This may include an increase in apnea or bradycardia episodes, tachypnea, tachycardia, poor feeding, or poor weight gain. The last part of the CBC is the platelet count. Normal platelet count in infants ranges from 150 to 450,000. Thrombocytopenia may be secondary to maternal thrombocytopenia, bone marrow suppression secondary to significant maternal preeclampsia, neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia, sepsis, congenital cytomegalovirus infection, and many other causes. Acceptable values for platelets depend on the patient's clinical status and risk of bleeding, in particular, the risk for intraventricular hemorrhage is considered. Transfusion thresholds range from below 30,000 to below 80,000 and are practitioner and situation dependent. Next, we will talk about electrolytes. 
Electrolyte values are obtained frequently in the NICU, especially for infants in the first few days of life or infants on IV fluids or total parenteral nutrition. All electrolytes are adjusted in TPN daily and can be given as supplements in patients who are feeding. Normal sodium values for infants range between 134 to 144 millimoles per liter. Sodium is a marker of fluid status. If there is not enough fluid for the patient, the sodium will be high. If the infant is receiving too much fluid, the sodium will be low. Sodium values can also be affected by how much we are supplying in fluids, TPN, or feeds. Sodium values can be decreased by diuretic therapy. The normal range for potassium is 4 to 6.3 millimoles per liter. Potassium will be elevated with hemolysis, which is a common occurrence with heel stick lab draws and sometimes necessitate a repeat with a free-flowing sample. Potassium may also be elevated in renal failure, and care should be taken to avoid potassium-containing fluids for these patients. A decrease in potassium may also occur with diuretic therapy. Normal chloride values range from 98 to 107 millimoles per liter. Elevated or decreased values usually correlate with the sodium values. Normal bicarbonate values range from 18 to 30 millimoles per liter. We will discuss bicarb levels in further detail in the respiratory section, but levels can be low due to immature kidney function or renal tubular acidosis. Levels can be elevated with chronic CO2 elevation or diuretic use. The normal range for glucose is 50 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. An infant's glucose can be affected by several things, including the level of illness or presence of diabetes in the mother. Glucose levels can be erratic in premature infants. We can adjust infant glucose levels by changing the dextrose concentration and or the rate of IV fluids. If a glucose level is outside the normal range on routine labs, confirm first with a point-of-care test prior to intervention. Glucose levels on routine laboratory testing may be falsely low or elevated depending on where the sample was obtained from and how long the specimen took to be analyzed. Normal blood urea nitrogen levels range from 7 to 21 milligrams per deciliter and are a marker of hydration and protein intake. The normal range for creatinine is 0.1 to 1.4 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is a marker of kidney function. Initially, creatinine is a reflection of maternal kidney function. Persistently abnormal or increasing levels of creatinine signify kidney dysfunction. Calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium levels are all important for bone growth and cellular function. The normal calcium values range from 8.5 to 10.4 milligrams per deciliter. It is important to note that the calcium level is affected by albumin levels, as calcium is bound to albumin in blood. An ionized calcium level can be checked on a blood gas measurement to give a more accurate calcium level. Normal phosphorus levels range from 4 to 9.5 milligrams per deciliter. Low phosphorus levels are predictive of osteopenia. We aim for levels at or above 6 milligrams per deciliter. Normal magnesium levels range from 1.7 to 2.2 milligrams per deciliter. Both phosphorus and magnesium levels can affect and be affected by changes in the calcium level.
In our last section, we will review some of the common things we are looking for on the x-rays of our NICU patients. Please see the example x-rays found in the supplementary material associated with this podcast. First, let's talk about endotracheal tubes. An x-ray should always be obtained after an infant is intubated for mechanical ventilation to check for tube location. The ideal position for an endotracheal tube is between the clavicles and the carina. If the tube is too high, the patient is at risk for accidental extubation. If the tube is too low, the tube will most likely go into the right mainstem bronchus, which places the infant at risk for pneumothorax on the side of the mainstem intubation and for atelectasis on the opposite side. Endotracheal tubes should be adjusted and resecured if an x-ray shows that the tube is in an improper position. Another tube that is commonly utilized in the NICU is an orogastric or nasogastric tube. This courses from the nose or mouth to the stomach on x-ray. It is used for venting air from the abdomen and administering feeds. Umbilical lines are commonly used for central access in the NICU. These long catheters are placed into the umbilical vessels shortly after birth to obtain more stable access. Usually, the umbilical cord has one vein and two arteries. The catheters come in two sizes, 3.5 French and 5 French, and can be double or single lumen depending on the practitioner's preference. The umbilical venous catheter, or UVC, courses through the umbilical vein, then through the ductus venosus in the liver, and finally into the inferior vena cava. The umbilical venous catheter is used to give medications, fluids, and blood products. Proper positioning of the umbilical venous catheter is at or just above the diaphragm on chest x-ray. An umbilical venous catheter that is too low may cause liver damage. An umbilical venous catheter that is too high may cause pericardial effusion or arrhythmias, such as supraventricular tachycardia. The umbilical arterial catheter, or UAC, courses through the umbilical artery into the internal iliac artery, then through the femoral artery, and finally into the aorta. The UAC is used for accurate blood pressure monitoring, arterial blood gases, lab draws, fluids, and is typically not used for blood products. Proper positioning of the UAC is between T6 to T9 or between L3 to L5. A catheter in the thoracic area is preferred. If the UAC is too low, you will be infusing substances near the kidneys, which can cause microemboli or thrombosis of the renal vasculature. UACs can cause perfusion issues such as arterial spasm or clot formation. When an infant needs prolonged central access, a PIC line may be placed. A PIC line, or peripherally inserted central catheter, is placed by a neonatal nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, or physician. PIC lines provide stable access to give medications and fluids. PIC lines should not be used to draw labs or give blood because of the increased risk of clotting. PIC lines can be placed in arms, axilla, neck, legs, or scalp. The line is placed in a peripheral vein and advanced to a central location. The proper position for the tip of the PIC catheter is in either the superior vena cava or inferior vena cava. PIC lines have similar complications to umbilical venous catheters. Finally, we will talk about transpyloric tubes. 
Transpyloric tubes are used for children who either have trouble tolerating gastric feeds due to feeding-related apnea episodes or who have significant reflux. The tube bypasses the stomach and allows feeds to be delivered directly into the duodenum. The portion of the tube where the feeds empty should be past midline on x-ray to ensure that the feeds are given past the pylorus. In addition to artificially placed tubes and catheters, there are other common findings on chest x-ray that contribute to an infant's clinical status. One of these is atelectasis. Atelectasis is the collapse or closure of the lung, resulting in reduced or absent gas exchange. Atelectasis is common in ventilated patients, especially if the endotracheal tube is displaced. Atelectasis can be treated by placing the atelectatic side up. Pneumothorax is a complication of mechanical ventilation. The patient usually has an acute deterioration with decreased oxygen saturations and can also have bradycardia. Unequal breath sounds are usually present on exam. Chest x-ray is diagnostic, but chest illumination may also be done at the bedside. The side with the pneumothorax will transilluminate. Depending on the severity of the pneumothorax and if it appears to be under tension, treatment may vary. For smaller pneumothoraces that do not appear to be under tension, close observation and monitoring may be sufficient. For patients with clinical deterioration or for larger pneumothoraces under tension, treatment is needle decompression or placement of a chest tube. In this podcast, we reviewed vital signs, lab values, and common x-ray findings in the NICU. The next podcast is about calculations, TPN, and nutrition. Please join us next time for the next edition of NICU Bootcamp. This podcast was recorded and edited by me, Kirsty Martin. Music by Lobo Loco, Piano Man Sofa Sofa, ID 1157, through Creative Commons License, BY-NC-ND. Music can be found at www.musikbrause.de. These podcasts have been adapted from the open access lectures published with the paper Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Bootcamp, a Preparatory Curriculum for Residents by Dr. Jeffrey Surkoff and colleagues at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. The originally published curriculum can be found online at MedEd Portal, the Journal of Teaching and Learning Resources of the Association of American Medical Colleges.